Well, if you've got your Bible, I, um, I'll have you turn to Luke 24, and that'll just be a short little stop before we head to the book of Hebrews. A couple weeks ago, we uh, found ourselves kind of in Hebrews. Two weeks ago, it was Easter Sunday, and um, we had some selected scriptures, as it were, uh, around are in the book of Hebrews around a particular subject, and I would need to pick up that subject up again this morning because we didn't finish what we started a couple weeks ago. And you'll know what that subject is as soon as I read these verses. Luke chapter 24, verse 50. Then he led them out to the vicinity, that's, of course, Jesus leading his disciples, of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Now, two weeks ago, if you were here on that Easter Sunday, we began a discussion, and it was a discussion around a a suggestion, my suggestion that Easter should be a day of celebration of not just of the resurrection, but it also to include the ascension and the session of Jesus Christ. And if you weren't here two weeks ago, this ascension, the ascension rather, is what we just read. That's the ascension of Jesus Christ, where Jesus ascended or he went up into heaven, or as Hebrews calls it, passing through the clouds. The session, however, is once he got through the clouds, once he presented his sacrifice to the Father and cleansed the holy temple in heaven, he then did what? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's called the session. So putting it all together, the exaltation of Jesus Christ after his death is is threefold. It's the resurrection, it's the ascension, and then it's the session. And what I was suggesting a couple weeks ago was that our focus on Christ on Easter Sunday needs to go beyond that resurrection. Uh, Otherwise, we need to have two more holidays in order to celebrate the ascension and session as well, which I'm okay with. But I doubt if we get two more holidays uh, with the Monday off. So we'll have to all include it on the one day, and that's Resurrection Sunday. And call it not Resurrection Sunday, but the exaltation day, the exaltation day. I'm just throwing it out. I mean, if you think about it, we're gospel people, right? We're all about the gospel, gospel-centered, gospel-centered lives, gospel-centered people, gospel-centered church. We're saved by the gospel. We're sanctified by the gospel. We're ultimately glorified by the gospel, and we ultimately part of our ministries to go out and preach the gospel. And yet, when it comes to our gospel, we normally stop at what point? We normally stop at the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Rarely does our gospel include Jesus' ascension and session. Others have noticed this. Peter Orr, a lecturer at Moore College, recently wrote, quote, Christians have tended to focus their attention on what Jesus has done, his life, his death, and resurrection, and what he will do, his return and reign, 
But what Jesus did after his resurrection and what he is doing now, those studies are often very rare, end quote. What do you think about that? I mean, have you ever thought about that? How come we don't think much about Jesus' ascension and session? Much more celebrate them. Patrick Schreiner also wrote recently a helpful primer on the ascension, and he said this, Though we might be more prone to contemplate Christ's earthly offices because they receive the bulk of the narration, Christ's ascension and session pushes readers to consider Jesus' work not only in the past but in the present and future. His actions on the earth informed and directed how to assess his activity in heaven. And listen to this. But in many ways, his work in heaven is superior. End quote. And now, in that little book, and I would commend that to you, he goes on to explore a number of reasons why the ascension and session is, is neglected. But as I was doing my own meditating, and actually, just so you know, I, I, I was thinking about this until I saw that the, there was a book, and I grabbed it and then read it, even Peter Orr's book. And, and so while I was doing my own meditating on this, I, I, I wondered if our thinking and studying of the ascension and session is rare for a number of reasons, but perhaps it's because we fully haven't appreciated it. In, in other words, the question might come, what has the full exaltation of Christ produced? Or better, what are the benefits? What are the benefits to us now that Christ has resurrected, ascended, and seated himself next to the Father? That's how I framed it, the benefits. It might sound a bit self-serving, but that's how I thought of it. What are the benefits to Christians now that Christ is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, having been raised from the dead, having ascended, having presented his blood into the heavens to the Father, and then the Father accepting it, and then Jesus himself sitting. I mean, you come back to the book of Hebrews, as we're going to start heading our way back to the book of Hebrews, starting today in a sense and next week. Both the exaltation of Christ and what that means to believers is, if you think about it, is practically the argument of the whole book. I mean, he never specifically calls, talks about the ascension. He never specifically talks or uses the word ascension, rather. He never uses specifically the word session. And only when you get to the end of the book does he talk about the resurrection. But the exaltation, all three of them are, are right through the whole book. And we saw that two weeks ago. And why does he mention that? Well, he does, or he mentions that because it's his way of helping his readers to move forward, to press forward, to strengthen their faith in the Christian life. I mean, how does the writer get his readers to press on and move forward in their faith? He tells them to what? To see Christ pass through the clouds into heaven, to see Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father crowned with glory, see Christ ministering there as our high priest, see Christ interceding on our behalf in the presence of God. I mean, that's the very gist of the book, isn't it? 
What he's saying is, here is the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and here are their benefits. So, as I said, two weeks ago, I thought, well, we're going to celebrate the resurrection, but we need to go beyond the resurrection, because if we're going to go back to the Hebrews, it's more than just the resurrection, it's the ascension and the session. But what are the benefits? And so I jotted down a, a, a list, and you can see them in your bulletin. It started off at 14 or 15 last week, and over two weeks, it's, it's grown to 21, sorry. 21, and there's more, but at least 21 benefits of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And I want to I work our, our way through these, all right? And I'm going to go through them very quickly. So if you, if you just, and that's why I put them in the bulletin, if you just catch the benefit and catch, you know, the verse connected to it, then just dot, jot it down and, we'll come, and you can come back to it at another time. But these are the benefits, as I saw them, of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And most of these are the book of Hebrews. So I guess we could go start your, making your way to the book of Hebrews. And, and they're not in any particular order except the very first one. This, the first one is the it's got to be the first one. This is, in fact, let me say it this way. This is the most important point to get if you're going to get any of these 21. So uh, uh, if you're going to get any of them, get this one. And here's number one. Our salvation is only completed or only finished in the exaltation of Christ. I don't know if you understand that. It's not finished on the death of the cross. It's not even finished on the resurrection of Christ, Christ had to ascend, Christ had to sit. That is the completion of our salvation. The, the analogy, of course, that the writer of Hebrew uses is a number of times is the priests in the Old Testament and certainly the high priest and the Day of Atonement. And, and, and you just got to think through this a bit. On the Day of Atonement, you, you see the high priest out there, outside of the temple, at the altar and making the sacrifice of the, of the bull. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He just doesn't make the sacrifice and say, okay, we're done for the day, does he? What has he got to do? He's actually got to go into the temple. He's actually got to go into the Holy of Holies. He's got to sprinkle the blood. And it was only at that point then we could say that God accepted that sacrifice. So Christ died... He rose again, but he has to ascend and go into the heavens. That's why Hebrews 4.14 says he passed through the heavens in order to present his blood, because he's not just the high priest, he is the sacrifice, with his own blood and cleanse or sprinkle, whatever word you want to use, the greater tabernacle, the greater holy of holies, which is in the very presence of God, in order that we can come behind him and enter heaven as well. We can't get to heaven unless he's in heaven. Does that make sense? Go over to Hebrews 9 so you can see this. Hebrews 9 verse 11. But Christ has appeared... All right, he didn't use the word ascension, but there's the, there's the, the, the idea, right? Appearing. Appearing where? He's appearing in heaven. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come 
in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, that's heaven, not made with hands, of course, not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. As I said, he's not just the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And the purpose of all that is what? Here it is, having obtained eternal redemption. Everybody capture that? Having e- obtained eternal redemption, or, or you might have in your translation, the, uh, securing an eternal redemption. So I go back to the point. Our salvation is only complete when that happens. And then you drop down to verse 24. Notice, notice what he adds there in verse 24. That Jesus' presence before God was for who? For us. Yeah, the writer of Hebrews is getting personal here. He did this for us. And then in verse 25, he did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary year after year with the blood of another, and that's the blood of the bulls and goats. Remember that. Remember in the Old Testament dispensation, remember there with the Levitical system, they had to do it year after year after year. But Jesus does it what? Once for all. Otherwise, verse 26, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. You understand that the blood of bulls and goats, God accepted. And it was atonement, but it was a temporary atonement. It was a temporary removal of sin. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all, and that was an eternal atonement, eternal removal of sin. Once for all. Capture that. Once for all. I mean, he sat down. He's not getting back up again. He's sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He's not sacrificed week after week like they do at the Catholic Church. Once for all. And then turn the page over to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Same thing. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifice time after time, which can never take away sins, uh, eternal sins. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, here's his session. Now, notice, he, he jumps from the death straight to the sitting down at the right hand of God. But in between there, implied is the resurrection and the ascension. It's only at that point that it is finished. Now, we went through this two weeks ago, but I have to belabor it as much as we've done just now because this is the most important point, and you need to see this. You need to get this point. Our salvation is only finished or completed in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Are we good? Clear on that? Secondly, and I'm going to race through the next few because this is review. Our preaching the gospel is grounded in the exaltation of Christ. And, and for that matter, just look at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews includes his death. The book of Hebrews includes his resurrection. The book of Hebrews includes his ascension. And the book of Hebrews, what, includes, his, and we just read it, his session. And, and all four of those as, uh, three aspects, as it were, in the exaltation of Jesus Christ is this short word of exhortation that he describes at the end of the book to encourage them. So this this book of Hebrews, this sermon, is full of the gospel, which includes all of that. And then you move right from 
you know, uh, Acts 2 through Acts 17, you read how the, the apostles preached. They did the same thing. They included the death, they included the resurrection, but they also included the ascension and session. I love how Paul on the day of Pente- uh, sorry Peter on the day of Pentecost says, "Therefore let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah." Well, how did that happen? I mean, you crucified it, but now He's Lord and Messiah. How did that happen? Well, God's raised Him, ascended Him, and now He's seated as Lord. So our preaching, the gospel, is grounded in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Number three, our union. If you think about this, notice how Paul, and I'll just give you one example, and this is not in the book of Hebrews, but my mind went back to Ephesians 2. Remember how Paul in Ephesians 2 says, He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Remember he said that? Remember back in Ephesians 1, he's talking about the power of God. Look, I pray that you would know the power of God, and that power of God you know because that's the power of God. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's the same power that he, well, he he first said made alive, and then he says raised, and then he says seated. That's the power of God in Jesus' life. But it's the same power in your life that he's what? Made alive, that he's raised up, and he is seated. Well, how'd that happen? Because you are what? United with him. You're united with Christ. So when he was made alive, when he was raised, and when he was seated, so were you. So the point is, our union with Christ is based on the full exaltation of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you ever caught that. Number four, our faith in Christ is strengthened when we look to the exaltation of Christ. And again, that's the book of Hebrews, right? I mean, here we have the context of Hebrews. Uh, the faith of these young believers were wavering. They were shaky. They were immature. And in a, in a, in a soundbite, he says, look to him. Look to Christ. Consider Christ. Hebrews 12.2 says, keep your eyes on Jesus. Well, where is he? Well, you keep your eyes on the exalted Christ. I mean, he's, he, he's in heaven. He's seating. He's Lord. We win. There's nothing to fear. It's good advice for all time, for all of us. I mean, if you want your faith strengthened, look to the, look to the exalted Christ. Number five, our hope of heaven is secure only because of the exaltation of Christ. I mean, that's kind of saying the same thing as number one, but I'll, I'm only saying it this way because if you go over to Hebrews chapter 6, look at Hebrews 6.20. Notice how the writer of Hebrews puts it. We have this hope. I love that. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner or trailblazer. Because he's there, we have hope. He has gone before us in order that we can follow. You remember when he was on earth, he told his disciples... In John 14, 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, uh, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? Well, there it is. He's gone. He's preparing, preparing a place. That's the hope. He has been exalted and is preparing for us to join him. Do you understand that? Isn't that good? John Calvin, he, he, in a sermon titled, A Sermon on the Ascension, uh, wrote this. By his ascension, 
Christ has made for us an opening into heaven, which has been closed through Adam. For since he entered there in our flesh, and as it were in our name, ours is no bare hope. We already possess it in Christ. End quote. Our hope of heaven is secure because of the exaltation of Christ. Number six. Number six, our prayer life is emboldened because of the exaltation of Christ. Turn back to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.16, you know this one. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Um, I mean, if your faith is shaky, if your faith is wavering, uh, and there's some uncertainty uh, about your salvation, you're going to be a bit apprehensive in coming to God in prayer, aren't you? But if I told you that Jesus not only died, but was raised, and not only raised, he ascended, and not only ascended, he's sitting at the right of the hand of the Father, would that, would that give you some boldness in praying? Some boldness in not just coming to the throne, but maybe more consistent in coming to the throne? Go back up to verse, or go, sorry, yeah, sorry, go back up to verse 15. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He's there. He's there. By the way, the same thought comes a lot later over in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there or just listen, Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. There it is. That, 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 if you get the point, the point is if you want to be more consistent in your prayer life and even more bold in your prayer life and maybe... We're not more consistent because we're not bold and we're not bold because our faith is pretty weak. But if you want your faith strengthened and in our faith strengthened, we become more bold and our boldness become more consistent. Grasp this thought. Grasp the thought that Christ is exalted. Donald Whitney found this quote this week. We must see the expectation to pray not only as a divine summons, but also a royal invitation. John Calvin in that sermon on the ascension says this, Jesus Christ has ascended up to glory. This we know. Understand, however, why he's there. Remember first what scripture says. He did not enter a sanctuary by the hand of man. He is in heaven interceding for us before God, his father. When we presume to pray to God, we will be rejected unless Jesus Christ is there on our behalf. And because he is there, he is our intercessor who causes our prayers to reach God and who allows us to have them answered as if we were privileged to tell God that what we have to do and to lay out our hearts before him. And because Jesus Christ is now in heaven, we may be sure that he is there to intercede for us. In entering the sanctuary, the high priest bore on his head the names of the children of Israel and on his front he wore 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, thus showing that although he entered alone, he did so on behalf of all. 
Now, since our Lord Jesus Christ has entered heaven and since he carried us there, although we are little more than senseless beasts, since he wears us on his front to show that he bears us on his heart, we should have not have any doubts when we pray to God. We should be certain that our prayers will always be acceptable to God, for it is through Jesus Christ that we speak. Certainty, assurance, boldness. We, we pray because he's there. Our boldness of coming to God in prayer is only because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Number seven. Let's keep moving here. Our love for Christ is engendered when we meditate upon the exaltation of Christ. And here, here I want to just pick up on that last thought. If you want your love for Christ to, to increase, you want that to be fanned, as it were, I, I, I would meditate on the exaltation of Christ and particularly that he is interceding on our behalf. I'm not sure we actually think about it that much. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. The, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.34 says the same thing. He is the one, or sorry, the question, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. If you understand that Christ is interceding, Christ is praying, I, I, I trust that it would engender your love for him. Every time you and I sin, I, I get this, this scenario in my head that Jesus is there saying, Father, I've taken care of that. I've taken care of that. I've paid for that. I've died for that. He's interceding on our behalf. Number eight. Number eight, our power. Think about this one. Our power and gifts to serve God in his church come about because of the exaltation of Christ. You ever thought about that? The only reason why we have power to live the Christian life and the only reason why we have the gifts that we do to exercise in the ministries of the church is because he has ascended. Just don't, for the sake of time, don't turn there. But this is what Ephesians 4 says. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive and he gave gifts to his people. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. And, and you know the rest. For the purpose to equip, for the work of the ministry, to build up the, the body of Christ. I mean, Jesus told his disciples, I'm telling you the truth. It is for your benefit. It's for your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the power. We read that in Acts 1. We need the power. There's, there's, you know, we, we can do nothing apart from, from Christ, right? But we can't do anything apart from the Spirit of God. We need that power. And it is the Spirit of God that gives the gifts. But none of that would have happened unless he what? That's why he says it's to your advantage. 
Because Christ ascended, he has given us gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to serve the church. That's a result of the exaltation. Number nine. Our covenant with Christ is sure because of the exaltation of Christ. I mean, God says, you are my people and I'm your God. But how can I be sure of that? How can I be sure that I am in a covenant relationship with, with, with God or a covenant relationship with Christ and th- that's secure? Hebrews 7 says this, because of this oath, and back in verse 21, it's the oath of Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the what? The guarantee, the surety of a better covenant. Uh, and, and that word surety is the equivalent of putting something into one's hand as a pledge. This is a done deal. I mean, even if you go back to Hebrews 2.1, when we looked at that, I, I picked that up where it says, For the one who sanctifies and the, those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. In other words, we're in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, you understand? And as a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, yes, he's our head and yes, he's our king, but in a sense, he's our elder brother. He's our kinsman redeemer. You can put it that way, taking on the typology of the, the book of Ruth. I mean, you ever wonder when you come to the book of Revelation and it says, you know, the question is asked, who is worthy to open up the seals? Who is worthy? Who is worthy? Worthy? What is he talking about? Who is the one that actually can break the seal, open the seal, and, and be a pledge so that this covenant can be secure? I, I, I can't do it. You can't do it. Only the the, the incarnate Son of God can do it. And that's why there's a a throne room full of praise in heaven once they they hear that Jesus is the one who's worthy. Our covenant. Our, Our covenant with Christ is sure because of the exaltation of Christ. Number 10. And again, I'm going through these quickly. But uh, uh, think about this one. Number 10, our true worship has this expression in the exaltation of Christ. Hebrews 2. Have a look at Hebrews 2 for a second, verse 9. Hebrews 2, 9, he says, But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. So we see that. We, We recognize that Jesus the very Son of God, very God, became man, became flesh, like man, in order to die. We we see that. But then what does he say? But now he's what? Crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Where's that crowning? Where's that glory? Where's that honor? That's in heaven. That's who we're to see. We're, we, we worship the exalted Christ. We worship the, the, the crowned Christ, the glorious Christ, the honorable Christ. And in, in fact, you, 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 you don't have to just go to the book of Revelation to, to understand that. You go to the book of Revelation, there's worship going on and on and on and on and on. And they're worshiping who? King Jesus. 
the exalted Christ. An older work by, by Henry Sweet on the Ascension um, that I found helpful. He says this, The Ascension makes clear the doctrine of the church of which the ascended Christ is head. Persons who take little interest in the heavenly life of Jesus Christ regard the church as a merely human society. Nor does it matter for surprise that men of this type ignore the corporate, light of the corporate life of the church. Indeed, listen, worship without an awareness of an ascended and interceding Christ soon, very soon, become mundane, impoverished, and a mere formality. End quote. Our worship is based upon the exaltation of Christ and has its true expression in the exaltation of Christ. I mean, you want to know where we as a church find our order, our authority, our worship in our life? Well, it, it comes in the knowledge of the resurrected, ascended, and seated Christ. All of it. Number 11. Think about this one. Our own glorification is promised because of the exaltation of Christ. Let me say that again so you get it. Our own glorification is promised because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a couple of verses that I've put down here. Let me go to the one that's probably more familiar, 1 John 3, 2. Remember how John puts it, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and that will be... And what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, you know that verse. What, what is that? What is he saying there? Well, we'll see him as he is. And how is he? He's the glorified Christ. He's the exalted Christ. And so when we see him, the only way we can see him is what? When we're changed. Did you catch that? we got to get changed before we can see him. We will be like him. And when we're like him, when we're glorified, we can see him. There's going to be a, a, a transformation, transfiguration that, that none of us can conceive of. But when that happens, we will see him as he is. Because we will be like him. So that's my point. My point is our glorification is promised because of the exaltation of Christ. Number 12, this is an obvious one. Our thanksgiving to God is given reason in the exaltation of Christ. Hebrews 12, 28, have a look at that. Hebrews 12, 28, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, what? Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God in an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Think about the benefit of receiving a kingdom. Think about the, the, the exalted Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Think about everything we've just discussed in terms of uh, 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 atoning for our salvation, interceding on our behalf. If you're struggling with gratitude, meditate on all that. Let us show gratitude. I mean, that's obvious. Give thanks. And here's one to think about, number 13. Our confidence in the word of God is rooted in the exaltation of Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean, when you think about 
and we sing it, Jesus the Messiah. When you think about the Messiah and all the promises and the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament that said he was going to die and that he was going to be resurrected. I mean, think about specifically, you know, Isaiah, the, the servant songs in Isaiah, where, again, he was going, it was promised, um, prophesied that he was going to die and then he was going to be raised. Think about Daniel 7, that he was going to uh, inherit the, the kingdom. I mean, I, we don't have time to go through all the promises, but you think about all the Old Testament promises and, and those that were fulfilled. Is, does that give you confidence that what you're reading here is the very word of God? And, and there's more to come. But the very fact that the promises, the, the, the hundreds of them that have already been fulfilled should give you confidence that the rest of them will be fulfilled, Right? This isn't just black ink on white paper. This is the very word of God. And all of that is rooted in the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Number 14. Our obedience is motivated by the exaltation of Christ. Our obedience is motivated by the exaltation of Christ. Here's a reminder for those who are struggling in their obedience. Jesus is Lord, right? You say you're a Christian. You say that Jesus is Lord, but as Jesus says, you call me Lord, Lord, but not what? Do what I tell you. I mean, isn't all authority in heaven and on earth been given to him? I mean, if he is Lord, if he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, you need to obey him. Remember how Paul puts it in Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death on the cross. And it's for that reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I mean, uh, ask the question, what should motivate us to obey? Jesus has made him both Lord and what? Christ. Acts 17. Paul, talking to the Gentiles, says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He's Lord. He's Christ. He's judge. And, and then notice, Paul says, and he's provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Put it in the forefront of your mind that Jesus is Lord. You need to obey him. The exaltation of Christ should motivate us to that. Not just the, the obedience, but number 15, our mortification, which is part of our obedience, but more specifically, our mortification is demanded by the exaltation of Christ. And that goes back to our union with Christ. Uh, don't turn there, but Colossians 3, Paul says, so if you have been raised with Christ, remember he said that in Ephesians 2, just wording it different here. If you have been raised with Christ sick, Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Therefore, put to death 
those things that belong to your earthly nature. In other words, what you need to do in your life is you, you've got a principle of sin, a law of sin that still remains. That's why you still sin. But you don't want that ugly thing to rise up. You need to kill it. You need to starve it. How am I going to starve it? How am I going to mortify the sin in my life? I need to take a few steps back and remember that I do this because I'm in union with Christ. I need to mortify the sin in my life because my life is in heaven. I mean, as God made me alive and as God raised me up, all in Christ and seated Him with there, why, why would I let sin reign in my mortal bodies if my life is not even in heaven, in, on earth? It's actually in heaven. And because my life is in heaven, I need to be dealing with my sin here on earth. That's his point here. Our mortification is demanded by the exaltation of Christ because we're there with him. Number 16, our thought life is... Is heavenward when we meditate on the exaltation of Christ. And if that's too wordy, let me put it this way. Our thought thought life becomes single-minded when we we think on the exaltation of Christ. I mean, uh, people come to me all the time struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety. And that's because they're not thinking rightly. Jesus says, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. Three times there in Matthew 6. And, and the root word there is marina, which has the idea of being double-minded. When you're anxious, your, your mind's all over the place. Now, if you don't want to be anxious and you want to be single-minded, set your, set your mind on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Set your mind heavenward. That's the point here. Make sure every thought is found captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, the the, the battle rages in the mind, doesn't it? The flesh and the spirit, when they they, they fight against each other, the battle is going to be found in the mind. And if you want victory over that battle, if you want victory over sin... You want victory over your wrong thinking, then set your set your mind set set your mind on the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Number seventeen. Number seventeen. Our comfort in the trials and troubles of life come only because of the exaltation of Christ. Here, here's John Calvin again. I found this very helpful. Seeing then that it is for our sake that He ascended and is now in heaven, there is nothing in this world we have to fear. We are, it is true, subject to much affliction so that our lot is pitiable indeed. We are more than wretched. We must not, however, be filled with fear or think only of ourselves. Rather, we should look to our head who is already in heaven. And we should say, weak though I am, there is Jesus Christ, who is powerful enough to keep me on my feet. Frail though I am, there is Jesus Christ who is my strength. Full of misery though I am, there is Jesus Christ in immortal glory. All that he has he will give me forever and I will share in all his blessings. The devil is indeed called the ruler of this world. What then? Jesus Christ holds him in check for he is the king of heaven and earth. The devils are up above us in the air and they wage war on us. Nevertheless, Jesus Christ reigns above them. And as he has done, and as he is the one who has 
full conduct of the battle, we cannot doubt that he will give us the victory. Here on earth, I am exposed to many changes which might make me lose heart. But there I see the Son of God who is my head and who is exempt from every change. That should be my confidence. That should be my comfort. This is how we should think of his ascension. End quote. That's good. Number 18. I know our time's running out. Let me just finish this. Number 18. Our relationships within the church are fostered because of the exaltation of Christ. I don't know if, if you think about that. Christ is the head of this church, and our relationships are under his eye. And there's a lot of one another's in this church. James talks about not showing partiality and not showing favor, holding our, our faith in, in, in partiality, who Jesus is the Lord of glory. And I always thought this is, that was an Old Testament reference. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, was there in the Holy of Holies in that glory cloud. And James is referring to that Jesus is the Lord of glory then, and he's the Lord of glory now. And as he was in the midst of his people then, he's in the midst of his people now. And as that reason, we are not to show partiality. And for that matter, we are not to show unkindness and unforgiveness. And You just keep going right down the road, down the, the, the list. Our relationships within this church are fostered because of that. Number 19, our endurance and suffering is supported by the exaltation of Christ. Our endurance and suffering is supported by the exaltation of Christ. And here we need just to learn from our Lord's example. Hebrews 12, 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originer and perfecter of the faith. And, and, and how did he get through it? who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew where he was heading. Did he like flogging? No. Did he like his head being pierced with the crown of thorns? Of course not. Did he like having his hands and his feet being nailed to a cross? No. But he saw what was coming. He knew of the glory that was coming. He knew that he was going to be raised. He knew he was going to ascend. He knew he was going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. It was for the exaltation that he endured it all. And Paul says, For our, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. He says, For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be real to us. We, we need to see the same thing that Jesus saw. Our endurance. Our endurance is, is because we're going to be in glory with Christ. You remember Stephen? Remember after he gave the sermon there in Acts 7? Luke writes, but he being full of the Holy Spirit looked intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see, this is Stephen, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. How did he get through it? Stone me. I'm going to be with Jesus in a moment. And there's Jesus standing. Well, hang on. I thought he's sitting. I like to think 
Stephen stood up for God, or stood up for Christ, and Jesus stood up for Stephen. That gave Stephen the the endurance to get through it. Number 20, two more. Our fear of death is relieved or mitigated by the exaltation of Christ. Uh, Look, all of us to some point perhaps have a fear of death, but if you want that completely relieved, just, just listen to the Puritan Christopher Love on his sermon, Christ's Ascension to Heaven. He says this, Is Christ's body now in heaven? Then be not afraid to die, because your Christ is in heaven. And when you die, death is but a trap door to let you into endless joy where Christ is. Why should we be as children to look on death as a bugbear, but look upon death as a passage to your father's house as being a trap door to let you in where Jesus Christ is. Did Jacob rejoice to see a wagon or a chariot that would carry him to Egypt to see his son Egypt? And will you not rejoice to think that death is a chariot to carry you to Jesus Christ, to carry you to heaven? Oh, therefore, let your heart not be troubled to die because death is but a chariot to carry you to heaven. Is Christ gone into heaven? Then why should not your heart be where your head is? Why should you be groveling on the earth seeing your Christ is now in heaven? That Christ is in heaven, it should make you ascend in your hearts heavenward. End quote. One more. And this too is an obvious one. And there's much more than the 21 I've mentioned here. But this one circles back to Luke 24. And you don't have to turn there. Just let me remind you what Luke 24 says. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up to heaven. And there's the point, as you see in your bullets, in number 21, our blessings come because of the exaltation of Christ. Because what you see there in Luke 24 is, here it is, 40 days after the resurrection, but while he ascends, what is he doing? Lifting his hands and blessing them. And he continues to bless them as as he ascends into heaven, as he is in heaven, and even as he sits down, he continues to bless them. Point is, because of the exaltation of Christ, we're blessed by him. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? What's, what blessing? Well, of course, spiritual blessings, but I'm talking about not more than salvation. I'm talking about everything that comes with salvation. Joy, happiness, peace, assurance, contentment. Do you realize that all of that or all of those are ours because of our exaltation of Christ? And he began that in his ascension, but continues to do it in his session. I love that. So we've got a, quite a list here. A number of benefits that I'm sure most of us have never thought of when we meditate on the exaltation of Christ, our salvation, our preaching, our union with Christ, our faith in Christ, our hope of heaven, it's secure, our boldness of coming to God in prayer, our love for Christ is engendered, our power and gifts to serve God, our covenant with Christ, our true worship, our glorification, our thanksgiving, our confidence in the word of God, our obedience, our mortification, our thought life, our comfort in trials, our relationships in the church, our endurance and suffering, 
our fearlessness and death, and lastly, our spiritual blessings. All of that and, and more come from a right knowledge of the exaltation of Christ. And so I, I, I circle back to where we began two weeks ago with that opening question, and that was, should we celebrate more than the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Should we also celebrate the ascension and session of Christ as well? Let me leave the last word to John Owen. He says, The season of Christ's entrance into heaven as the holy sanctuary of God was the greatest instance of created glory that ever was and ever shall be until, until the consummation of all things. Heaven, listen carefully, listen to this. Heaven was a quote-unquote new place when Christ arrived in his ministry of reconciling all things. Yes, heaven was perfect as it could be before Christ entered, but it was also perfect as it could be once he entered. Yet, with his entrance, heaven attained a greater glory. End quote. Uh, we don't think like that. But for that, I think the exaltation of Jesus Christ is worth celebrating. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning where bit of a long list, but we got through it, and we thank you for that. Just meditating, chewing over what it means that you raised Jesus from the dead, that you ascended him and you sat him down at your right hand. What does that mean? At minimum, it means that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It means that sinners need to repent. That they need to confess Him as Lord. They need to bow the knee to His Lordship. It means that one day you've appointed Him as judge. And that all men, all mankind must repent. It means that all mankind needs a Savior. And He is the name that you've given. And for us who have uh, received Him, accepted Him as Savior. And all those benefits are now ours because of His exaltation. What a, what a glorious thought and thoughts they were. There's no fear in death anymore. Our obedience is motivated. Our mortification is demanded. Our relationships in, in the Christ, uh, in, in the church, rather, are are seen by you and thus it should be unity and harmony here. Certainly, no impartiality, no partiality. So we thank you, as the writer of Hebrews says, for such a great salvation. And indeed, let us show gratitude because of all this, of the kingdom and the king that we are to receive, that you have given us by your grace and your mercy nothing we have deserved. And we thank you, Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you have done for us. 
We say with the Apostle Paul, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. We long to be transfigured and transformed so that we can see you as you are and be with you forever and ever and ever. Amen.